We are continuing our series on the minor prophets, and every time I start to prepare a lesson on one of these other minor prophets, I think about the one that we probably know the best. Out of all of those minor prophets that are listed at the top and the bottom, if you don't know them off the top of your head, which, which minor prophet would you say we know the best? Jonah, right? I mean, like, we have worn that story out, haven't we? I mean, like... We know it, like if we grew up coming to church, we, we learned it from, it was like one of the first Bible stories we ever learned. In fact, there's probably like a dozen Bible stories that we sort of wear out, right? I mean, like we teach them from the time kids are, are born to the, and then we keep talking about them our entire life, right? And that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. And there's so many principles that, that those stories can teach us so much about God and about faith and about following God and serving Him. There's all kinds of good things that we continue to glean from those things. In a couple of weeks, we'll talk about Jonah in this class. So it's good for us to continue to talk about Jonah. I'm convinced we really haven't even scratched the surface on Jonah most of the time that we talk about it. But I got to thinking about that today. Why is it that we talk so much about Jonah but we don't talk about all of these other minor prophets. Like, I've never once seen a VBS theme around Amos. Have you? I mean, I've never seen an Amos VBS theme. You know, there's the fish did, the fish did, the fish did, the fish did. You know, there's no cute songs about Amos. You know, none of that. Um, there, there's no Bible story books. I even looked on Amazon uh, this week. I, I Google or I, I Amazon searched uh, for Amos children's Bible stories. Nothing, right? Jonah? Yeah, there's tons of Jonah Bible story books, but there's, there's no Amos children's Bible story books. In fact, if you got like a full Bible story book, I bet they don't even cover Amos, right? Or most of these other minor prophets. But the story about Amos, not old, and I thought, well, why, why is that? Why is it that Jonah, that we sort of wear that one out? I guess maybe part of it is that the whole fish thing, right? I mean, getting swallowed by a fish, that's pretty exciting and rare. And so we're like, yeah, that's, that's a cool story. Part of it, too, is that Jonah is almost entirely narrative, right? It's a, it's a story, so it's, and it's short, and it flows really well, and there's four chapters, and it's really easy to organize and kind of work through. So there's some good reasons that Jonah is so popular. Uh, but I got to thinking about the story about Amos, and even the short narratives that we have within this book makes it an incredibly captivating story. I don't know that it's, you know, a child's story, but I don't know that Jonah is really a child's story. All of these stories, all of these accounts, and these records, and these writings, these poems, and these prophecies are for our edification as God's sanctified, chosen people. These are our stories, and, and these are our people, and there is so much that we have to learn from them. So you think about the story about Amos. Amos is a shepherd and a, um, a, a fig grower. He lives in Tekoa. There's a map on the next slide, which is just, it's kind of the flag on the southern part of that map there, south of Jerusalem. So what kingdom. This is during the divided kingdom. So what kingdom is Tekoa in? Judah, right? And then the northern kingdom is Israel, right? So the, the northern kingdom of Israel, the capital of which being Samaria. Um, and then Amos gets the, the call from God to go up from the southern kingdom to the northern kingdom, which those are their Israelite brothers, 
but it's also a different kingdom, right? So he, he gets the call, like Jonah gets the call to go to Assyria, to Nineveh, Amos gets the call to go to the northern kingdom of Israel. So he leaves, and he's a shepherd. And so he's watching his sheep, and all of a sudden, God comes to him. And Amos isn't a prophet. He's not a professional prophet. He's not a teacher. He's not a preacher. He's not a theologian. He's a shepherd. And God calls him to go to a different kingdom, to go to his brothers and sisters living in the northern kingdom. And he goes up to Bethel, which is the place of worship for the northern kingdom of Israel, the place of idolatry and the place of uh, the sort of twisted worship that they had going on there, but so did they in the, in the southern kingdom of Judah as well. But Amos goes and he talks to Amaziah, the priest, and here's part of his message. Here's how Amaziah uh, sums it up in Amos chapter 7 and verse 11. Jeroboam shall, that's the king, King Jeroboam shall die by the sword and Israel must go into exile away from his land. Now, if you've read the Bible lots, you read passage like that and it doesn't really, you know, like spike your blood pressure at all. But imagine if somebody came into your country and said, your president must die and all of your people need to be carried off into captivity. What would you think about a person like that, right? You, you wouldn't like a message like that, would you? I mean, that's not a very patriotic type of message, is it? And, and, and the high priest didn't like that message either. Amos comes in and says, Jeroboam's going to die by the sword and Israel must go away into exile. And of course, Amaziah, you know, reports this to the king and says, Amos is a, is a traitor and he's saying all of these bad things. He's come up from Judah and he's prophesying these bad things. He says that you're going to die and he says that our people are going to have to go away into exile, away from the land. And so Amaziah comes back to Amos and he says, you, you need to be quiet. Stop prophesying that stuff here. You can go back to Judah if you want to. Prophesy whatever you want down in Judah. But don't you dare come back up here saying that kind of nonsense. We don't want to hear it anymore. And in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Sound like a a fun message to have to deliver? I mean, can you imagine carrying a burden like that? I mean, you're tending your sheep and taking care of your trees. That's what Amos did. He was a shepherd and took care of fig trees. And God says, I need you to go up to Israel and I need you to deliver this message to them. Tell them that I'm going to judge every nation, every single nation, but especially tell them I'm going to judge Israel. Tell them that the king is going to die. Tell them that they're going to be captives. Tell them that they're going to be exiles. Tell them that their sins and their evil and their wickedness will be punished. And so Amos has to go and deliver this message. And he delivers it in a time where everybody is really, really... I, I almost said things were good in Israel, and that's an interesting term, isn't it? When we say it was a time when things were good, what do we normally mean by that? Prosperous, right? Yeah, people have money, right? They're comfortable, right? Does that necessarily mean things are good? Isn't that interesting how we very often associate the two? For the rich people, the wealthy people of Amos's day, they were very comfortable, luxurious. Everything in their mind was going well. 
everything was going well, they'd offer their sacrifices, they'd say their prayers, they'd sing their songs. But meanwhile, they were living off of the backs of the poor. They were oppressing people. Justice was being perverted. And I'm sure, because we know how these kind of things work, don't we? That they didn't really think about it, right? Nobody really thinks about that kind of thing, do they? Nobody sets, I mean, maybe in a movie, you know, in the movies, they, the bad guys always have like an evil laugh. I won't, I won't do an evil laugh for you, but, you know, the bad guys always have an evil laugh and they kind of rub their hands together and they, they're bad and they know it, right? They don't care who they step on, but in real life, it's a lot more complicated than that, isn't it? And people don't stop and think about the fact that they're taking advantage of people, and that their prosperity and that their wealth and that their comfort is coming at the expense of other people. And that their riches are, are meaning other people's poverty. And they're actually sinning and breaking the law by what they're doing to the poor people. They don't stop and think about those things. And that's why it was so important that these prophets come in and wake people up and say, this, what you're doing is wrong. This laziness and this gluttony and this drunkenness and this oppression is wrong. So you might break down Amos into, and you could probably break down most of the minor prophets this way, issuing rebuke, encouraging repentance, and promising restoration. So rebuke and repentance and restoration. Let's look at all three of those. Look at Amos chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Amos chapter 2 and verse 6. So here's, here's Amos's rebuke for the people of Israel. Now again, he's, he's a southerner coming up to the north and prophesying against the sins of the people in Israel. And, and he does go through the list. He begins by saying, all of these other nations of the world, God will punish and has punished. But Israel... Don't think for a minute that you're going to get off the hook because you're God's people. In fact, that for that very reason, he's going to hold you accountable. Amos 2 and verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, that's kind of a pattern in all of this rebuke, for three and then for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So, I mean, there's several layers of things that they're doing wrong, right? There's idolatry, right? The, the house of their God, right? Whether that's Yahweh God or whatever God that they were worshiping. And he says on every altar or by every altar. And then there's also the sexual immorality that's going on, a dad and a son and the same girl. So there's all sorts of different things. But do you notice Amos's concern that reflects God's concern, obviously, for the poor? In fact, he even says, that they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. Now, what does that mean, on garments taken in pledge? Well, that goes back to the law of Moses, doesn't it? And, and Moses had commanded the people not to take someone's cloak in pledge or take it as um, 
Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Collateral. Yeah, thank you. Collateral. If ever you take, this is Exodus 22, 26. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Right? He says, listen, if you're, if you're going to hold somebody's cloak as collateral, as pledge for what they owe you, you give it back to them before what? The sun goes down, because that's where he's going to sleep. And here, Amos is portraying these people sleeping on, laying on the cloaks that they took from the poor in place. Can you imagine? The only thing you have to put up for collateral is your cloak. And so that's the only thing you have to say, well, hold on to this, and you know I'll pay you because that's my only garment. So here, hold on to this, and I'll pay you. And they're sleeping on it. And God says in Exodus, in the law, he says, if they cry out to me, I will hear and I will be compassionate. God cares about the fact that they're taking advantage of their brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. Amos 4 and verse 1. Hear this word. <laughs> Prophets are pretty rough. You cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, that's the capital city, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out throughout the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress. Now remember, Bethel is the place of worship in Israel, right? Now, why would... God, why would Yahweh be saying to the people of Israel to come to Bethel? Was that, was that the right place for worship? Where was the right place for worship? In Jerusalem, right? But because of the split between the two kingdoms, they had set up their place to worship in Bethel. But now God is saying to them, come to Bethel and do what? Transgress. Come to Bethel and sin. Just keep on. Just keep on piling up your sins. Just keep on. Just keep on doing what you're doing. To Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them. What does that mean? Publish your free will offerings. Brag about it. Just tell everybody how generous you're being. For so you love to do, O people of Israel declares the Lord God. Now, it's obviously a little tongue-in-cheek, isn't it? A little sarcastic. To say, this is the kind of thing that you're doing. You're, your worship to me is a mockery. This worship that you're offering, even if you're offering it in my name or to me, it's a mockery. And I will punish and so if this is what you're going to do, then just keep on doing it and just build up the transgressions. And this is the kind of thing that you love to do. You love to brag about how godly you are. You love to brag about how good you are. So again, so many times at Jesus' day or in the prophets or so many, so many moments in Israel's history, it isn't, it isn't the people that we think about as being the bad guys. 
that the prophets come to and prophesy against, is it? It's not the the evil guys with the laugh and the rubbing their hands together that know they're bad and enjoy being bad. Sometimes it is. But a lot of times it's the religious people that are offering sacrifices and saying prayers and giving free will offerings For the right reasons? No, absolutely not. They're patting themselves on the back. They're full of self-righteousness. But in their mind, they're good. In their mind, everything's going well. I'm rich. I'm comfortable. I have plenty to eat. I have plenty to drink. I have plenty of clothes to wear. I'm worshiping God. God is blessing me. Everything is good. And Amos says, nothing could be further from the truth. Because one... Obviously, there's some idolatry going on, but Amos' biggest concern is how they're treating their fellow man. Amos chapter 5 and verse 10. They hate him who reproves in the gate. What does it mean to reprove? To correct and rebuke, right? People have always hated that. I don't like to be reproved. Do you like to be reproved? I don't like somebody telling me I'm wrong. And, And Amos says that's, They hate it. They hate it when someone comes to town and tells them you're wrong. And how you're treating your brothers and sisters, it's wrong. And what you're doing to your fellow human beings, it's wrong. And how you're living your life, it's wrong. And the worship you're offering to idols, it's wrong. And it needs to stop. They hate him who reproves in the gate. And they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You've you've built these houses, these beautiful hewn stone houses, but you won't live in them. Um, Immediately when I read that, I think about the parable that Jesus told. Do you remember? And he says, that there's this rich man and he has all of this grain and he, he stores it up. In fact, he has so much grain and his harvest is so big, he says, I don't know what to do with all this grain. I guess I'll just tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And God says to him that very night, you fool. Tonight, you're gonna die and who's gonna get all of your stuff? Why, why was the rich man in Jesus' parable a fool? Right. Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly, he thought he could eat, drink, and be merry. Did he have neighbors that needed his grain? Yes. Isn't this, is this, is this the way that God taught his people to live in the promised land? When God brought the people out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land, he gave them a remarkable law. A remarkable framework for how to think about themselves and how to think about their role in humanity, how to think about their neighbor. When they harvested their grain and they harvested their grapes, they were even supposed to do things like leave some. Don't take a second pass. If some falls on the ground, don't go back and pick it up. Why? Because that's the welfare system, right? There's poor people. There's sojourners. There's people that are immigrants. There's, there's widows, there's orphans, and these people, they need that grain. And so you pass by, you harvest your grain, but whatever is left in the field, you let those who need it come and pick it up. But instead, you see what happens? 
He says that you're, you're taxing the poor and you're taxing them to death. You oppress the poor, you crush the needy. You exact taxes of grain from him. And so God says, you've built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside to the needy, turn aside the needy in the gate. You know, I can't, I can't help but read this and think about the fact that God cares about the economic policies of people. And that puts it in very modern terms, doesn't it? But it's true, isn't it? God cares about his people's economic policies. Maybe, maybe God's people have lived in communities and in kingdoms and in nations where they didn't have a whole lot of say over what the economic policies of everybody else were, but we all have a say about what our own personal economic policies are, don't we? And we have this tendency, people, human beings, I'm not saying you and I necessarily, specifically, but human beings have had this tendency to look out for number one, right? That's what we say, look out for number one. Take care of me and mine and let everybody else take care of theirs, right? But that's not how God set up things. When God sent people into the promised land, he said, you take care of one another. Not only do you take care of you and yours, you and your family, but you take care of the sojourner, the foreigner who's sojourning in your land. You take care of the fatherless. You take care of the orphans. You take care of the widows. You make sure that they have something to eat. And that's why people like Boaz, do you remember the story of Ruth, Naomi, these two widow ladies who come back to Bethlehem and they're hungry and they're destitute. And Boaz is a righteous man. He is faithful according to the covenant because he does things like tell his servants, hey, when, when there's somebody gleaning behind you, pull out stalks of grain and leave it on the ground for her so she can pick up those things. Not because he thought she was pretty and he was in love with her, but because he was a righteous man and he fulfilled the covenant God gave to Israel. And thankfully, there was a remnant of people who were doing things like that, but the majority of people weren't. They were just taking care of themselves. And these people of Amos' day, they thought, you know what? Everything is good. We're comfortable. We're religious. We pray. We offer our offerings and our sacrifices. We give free will offerings. We're good people, and we have lots of stuff. Get off of our backs. And Amos says, yeah, you hate it when somebody tells you the truth. You hate it when you're reproved. You turn aside the needy in the gate. Chapter 6, verse 4. Woe to those. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. The prophets often use Joseph as a metaphor as a way of speaking about, a figurative way of speaking about Israel. You don't care that your people are ruined 
And meanwhile, you're laying on your beds and stretching yourself out on your couches. You're eating your fill. You're drinking your fill. You're singing songs and playing on your harps, but you don't care about righteousness, goodness, justice, fairness. You don't care about your brother. And that, that's the problem. You think about so many things that Jesus taught. You think about the, the rich man and Lazarus parable that Jesus taught. And we like to talk about that parable and say, wow, I wonder what the afterlife is like. It's like, that's not what the parable was about. Or maybe it wasn't a parable. Maybe it was a real story. We can't, we're not going to debate that either. The story is about the fact that there is a man named Lazarus who's lying at the doorstep of a person who has plenty of food and Lazarus wants a crumb from the table and has nothing, nothing. And the reason why the rich man is in fire and flames is because his brother was laying at his gate and he did nothing to help him. He was right there in front of him and he was not generous. The same as the rich fool that Jesus spoke about as well. Verse 7, Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry, the parties of those who stretch themselves out, shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and I hate his strongholds and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. But not only did the prophets rebuke and say, this is what you're doing wrong, but they also encouraged repentance and said, but, but it's not too late. You can change. You can do something different. You can change the way that you're living. Uh, And so Amos chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Amos says, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. The God of hosts. I love that phrase, don't you? The New Living Translation translates that as the God of angel armies. That's what hosts are, right? Angel armies. The God of angel armies will be with you, right? Because he's in covenant with you, people. And if you're faithful to him and you seek good and not evil, God will be with you. But if you don't and you continue down the path that you're on, the God of hosts will be against you. He will be with you, as you have said, hate evil, and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. The gate was where justice happened. It was their their courtroom, right? And when a widow comes to you, someone like Naomi, someone like Ruth, and, and they need redemption, and they need help, and they need justice, not Not always justice like punitive, like you did something bad, now you're going to jail. Not always that type of justice, but setting things right, making things fair and equitable, lifting people up from where they are to where they need to be. That's that's the type of calling and commission that Israel always had when they went into the promised land. This is how you treat the widow. This is how you treat the fatherless. This is how you treat the this sojourner. 
This is how you treat the poor. You lift them up. And when they come to you and they say, I have this problem, but you're going to have to leverage what you have in order to help them do it. That's your job. That's the law. Do it. Because that's what God has done for you. You were slaves in Egypt. And God brought you out. He saved you. He redeemed you. Now you go and do that for each other. Hate evil. Love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And you know, I think about the fact that this is what repentance looks like, isn't it? Repentance isn't just, I'm sorry, I feel bad. I think about the story about the the wee little man. You remember the wee little man? Who's the wee little man? Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He's exactly the type of person that all of the prophets preached against. He's making his living off of taking advantage of, manipulating, oppressing his brothers and sisters. He's just looking out for number one. And I'm sure that he just thought of it that way. I'm just taking care of me and mine. I'm getting what I can while I can. And then Jesus shows up and changes his heart from the inside out. And Zacchaeus repents. And what does his repentance look like? I'm, I'm going to give whatever I've taken from other people. I'm going to restore it. I'm going to lift them up. I'm going to leverage what I have for the good of other people. That's what repentance looks like. That's exactly what Amos is calling people to do. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. This is the type of life that God has always called you to. And if you're going to be God's covenant people, this is what it looks like. It doesn't look like just hating evil. It doesn't look like just saying, well, that's too bad. I'm sorry, people, if, you know, I'm going to stop doing that. I won't oppress anybody else. No more oppression for me. I won't take advantage of anybody else. No, no, no. It's, it's not enough to just say, I'm not going to participate. you got to help make the world a better place. you got to help lift people up. You've got to help establish justice in the gate. You, you've got you've to help the poor and the widow and the sojourner. You've got to help the slave because that's what God has done for you. Amos chapter 5 and verse 18 Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. (laughs) Apparently there were people already saying, oh, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, redemption and salvation. Remember what we talked about last week? We talked about the day of the Lord, and for the righteous, the day of the Lord is a good thing. But Amos says, no, 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 no. Y'all don't get to say, oh, I can't wait for the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's not, it's darkness, not light. As if a man fled from a lion... Like, you're like, oh, no, I'm afraid of all of these bad people in the world. I can't wait till God comes and sets everything right, and you're running away from the lion, and you meet a bear. <laughs> right? It, it, it's, it's not going to be good for you. You run away from the lion, and a bear met him. Or you go into the house and lean, against the, lean your hand against the wall, and you think, oh, now I'm safe, and a, a serpent bit him. Right? He said, you, you think the day of the Lord is going to be salvation for you, and it's not. Because you're not living as God's covenant people. It's not the day of, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me, 
Your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your hearts, I will not, to melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Is worthless if we treat the poor poorly. Our worship is worthless if we treat the poor poorly. If we treat people, especially the most vulnerable people around us poorly, then God says to his people, I don't want to hear your songs. I don't want to hear your prayers. Your solemn assemblies make me sick. Again, I think about the New Testament passages, too, that just keep flowing into my mind. I think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians to the church. They're coming together, having the Lord's Supper. Paul says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're taking. Because your poor brothers and sisters, you're eating without them. And you're shaming them because they don't have enough to eat. And you're eating and getting full, and they have nothing. And they show up, and you've already had your feast. He says, it's a shame. And you're actually doing more harm than good when you come together. He says, that's not the Lord's Supper. Our worship is worthless if we treat the poor poorly. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. But in so many of the prophets, and almost every prophet, there's not just rebuke and calls to repentance, but there's also promises of restoration. Also promises that God will renew and restore, and make everything right. Look at Amos chapter 9, verses 8 through 15. This is how Amos ends, the book of Amos ends anyway. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, Israel, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes a sieve, you know, like a, like sifting things, you know, you put something in there and you shake it out and, and there's going to be a lot that falls through, right? There's going to be a lot that falls through and is, isn't going to make it, but there's going to be a remnant that is left, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Does that passage ring a bell? In the New Testament, when, when the Jerusalem Christians got together and were deciding about, you know, what from the Old Testament, or from the law, are we going to insist that our Gentile brothers follow, our Gentile brothers and sisters follow? Look at Acts chapter 15, verses 12 through 19. They're getting together in this council, this group in, in Jerusalem, and they're deciding this. It says, the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they were finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So Peter told them about Cornelius' house, right? And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And and he's thinking about Amos and this passage in Amos. And he says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent 
of David that has fallen. I'll rebuild David's house. Who, who, is, who is the rebuilding of David's house? It's Jesus, the son of David, rebuilding the house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So James is saying this is exactly what Amos said was going to happen. God would rebuild the house of David and that even the Gentiles would come into God's family and that's what's happening here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman, oh, I'm sorry, back to Amos, sorry, back to Amos chapter nine, we'll finish up. And here's the rest of the promise that he makes. Not only will the Gentiles come into the family when the house of David is rebuilt, but verse 13, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, One translation says that the the person who gathers, the harvester, will, will be going faster than the person who's planting it. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord, your God. Restoration and renewal. Isn't this exactly what we've talked about for the last several weeks? Even when we were talking about the meek shall inherit the earth. These are the promises of all of God's prophets that his faithful remnant through Jesus The house of David will be rebuilt and they will inherit a better world. Here's some questions to ponder as we think about the book of Amos. Number one, is a shepherd preached message to comfortable, wealthy, superficially religious people? And I'm not saying that you're that or we're that or people in this room are that. But is this message still relevant today? If there was a danger of the Israelites in Amos' day being comfortable and lazy and only superficially religious, and they needed to hear a wake-up message that your wealth and your comfort and your prosperity is coming at the expense of your neighbors who don't have and you're overlooking them, then I'll tell you, for me personally, I need to hear that constantly. Wes, keep your eyes open. Because if there's a Lazarus at your gate who's longing for the crumbs from your table and you overlook him, then you will be held accountable because you're not treating him as God in Christ has treated you. If God expected his Israelite people to treat their neighbor as he had treated them with love and compassion and justice and fairness, then he expects as much, if not more, from us, doesn't he? in the way that we treat our neighbor. And even, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, even our enemy, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Number two, would it help us to remember that our worship is worthless if we treat the poor poorly? Verse three, do we still have reason to draw hope from Amos' promises of restoration and renewal? Yes, 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 we do. In fact, if we read it in light of what what James says in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 15, that this new age 
of the Messiah reigning and the house of David being rebuilt and the Gentiles, that's us, coming into the family of God. It isn't just a future hope, it's a present reality. That this is our present reality, living in the kingdom of God. And if this is our present reality, how much more so should we be generous with our neighbors? So here's our final thought. I'd like to end with one passage from Amos. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, you have been better to us than we can possibly express in words. You have given us an inexpressibly great gift, covenant membership in your family, salvation, forgiveness, hope, and inheritance. And Father, we thank you And we pray, Father, that you help us to extend the love and the comfort and the grace and the mercy that we've received from you. Help us to extend that to others. Help us to extend it when we're well-treated and when we're poorly treated. Help us to extend it when it's easy for us to do and when it's challenging for us to do. Help us, Father, to open our eyes to the plight of the people around us, to seek out people to do good to, to use every opportunity that we have to do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Father, we thank you for Jesus and for the life we have in him. Thank you for forgiving us and helping us to walk in the light as you're in the light. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.